This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast that focuses on all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is Hill Baden, and I'm here today with Eduard Saladevadruna, who leads our clean tech practice within the IHS market energy research consulting team. Eduard, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Thanks, Hail, for having me here today. Gladly. Yeah, we've been, uh, we've been, I guess, scheduling and rescheduling this for several days and weeks now. So, so I'm excited that, that we're finally able to put this together. Uh, finally. A, a busy person with, with a uh, very, very important topic. So, so Eduard joins us today from, from Barcelona, which he let me know just before the, uh, before we started recording. And uh, I understand you're a, a fan of Barcelona football or soccer. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I am. I am. Yeah, as I, as I mentioned to you, maybe it's not the best year uh, to talk about football uh, or soccer because the team is not performing that well this year as we were used to. But well, uh, yeah, they're playing. The last games have been quite good. So, yeah. I'm optimistic. What's the general take? Because they leaked Messi's contract information earlier this year, right? And, and what's the general Is there backlash on the, I mean, I don't remember the signing bonus, but it was huge. Uh, and his pay is making it real hard for Barcelona to do anything else. Uh, yeah, it's true. But at the same time, you, yeah, it's, uh, you would guess that the, he's generating more money for FC Barcelona than the money that he costs, right? He's the, he's the greatest player that has ever, well, the, the greatest uh, soccer player of history, I would say, at least of modern history. So I think that having him in FC Barcelona should be uh, a priority. So it's, he's clearly an asset for the, for, for the club. And I hope that he's going to stay. At this point, it's, it's more a hope than anything else. But yeah, I hope. What do you think the odds are that, that Pep makes a play for him within Manchester City? It's hard to say because at the end, soccer, it's yeah, it's a, it's a business. Uh, we are talking here uh, from from a from a supporter standpoint. I would like to believe that he's going to stay with us, that he feels the colors, the club, and that he's going to stay for life. But at the same time, he's a professional. He wants to to to, to win uh, tournaments. He wants to be to, mm-hmm. to, to win the championship, uh, the Champions League. Sorry, and he wants to make sure that he has a competitive team uh, playing with him. So, and of course, uh, yeah, Pep Guardiola. He's 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 a fantastic coach. So, and 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 they know each other very well. So, yeah, we will see. We will see. We'll see. Yeah, my uh, yeah, I mentioned that that my son and I watch Manchester City pretty closely, and and we're we are, I suppose, less interested in in Messi moving over there, and and he, my son, is a defender, and so Manchester City's duo in the back this year with Stones and uh, Ruben Diaz has been incredible and fun to watch, especially as someone kind of naturally interested in defense uh, to begin with. Yeah, I think it would not be bad to add Messi to that, right? Or Holland, if they can bring in Holland, because Aguero uh, is in all likelihood, you know, moving on, or, or at least less the contributor than he was. Well, 
you know, we I, I could sit here and talk European soccer all day, but yeah, but that's not uh, the topic of today's pod, right? <laughs> that that is not the topic of today's pod, and we we, we may you know find as many friends and as enemies talking about soccer. Uh, so, so maybe correct. clean tech is a little bit less uh, less controversial. That we're talking about football. So, so Eduard, you know, as as I mentioned, you lead the, the clean tech division within IHS. Um, and so we, we've done a lot of podcasts or a handful of podcasts with members of your team looking specifically at one renewal, renewable technology or another, uh, but, but really haven't done one that looks at um, the, the, the rise of renewables relative to one another. And so I'm excited to have that conversation with you. So, so I guess, you know, maybe just kind of a first place to, to start as we're looking at the overall market opportunity for renewables. Um, you know, that there's curiosity at the regional level and curiosity at the technological level, whether wind, solar, or batteries. Can you, you know, help put all of this into, into context, frame it for us in terms of what, what are the regions that are really driving things globally today? And what are the technologies that, that are, um, you know, I suppose, really leading, leading the way with us? Well, I think that when you think about the, the, the geographies, right, where the growth from renewables is coming from, I think that you have like three main poles, right, of development. One is the historical pole that is Europe, is where uh, most of the renewables were built and, and where a lot of renewables continue to, to be built nowadays. We have the U.S. and North America, where we have this mainly the U.S. with a quite uh, healthy level of additions and, and, and record in year levels, for example, last year, but then you have Asia. And Asia, within Asia, you can, uh, you have basically two main countries that are driving the growth. One is mainline China that accounts for around 40% of the total growth globally. Then you have India, another important growth engine. But we are seeing a lot of countries in Southeast Asia and as well Australia popping up and adding capacity. So in terms of regions, uh, really the gravity center is moving towards Asia. Asia is really going to be the contributor to the growth of renewables going forward. Uh, over 60% of the new growth that we expect in the coming years is going to come from that region. And we will continue to have Europe and North America playing uh, a key role. Between these three regions, we are going to have 90% more or less of all the additions uh, that we expect uh, yeah, to be to to cut to, to happen uh, within the next uh, thirty years, uh, globally. And then when we when we look at, at technologies, the story is very similar in the sense that the largest technology in terms of additions is going to be solar photovoltaics. Solar photovoltaics is going to add uh, to account for around sixty percent of all the additions. And then you have two other technologies that are going to contribute to uh, to the remaining forty percent more or less that are uh, onshore wind and offshore wind. So really, these are the, the, the three technologies, uh, solar, photovoltaics, onshore wind and offshore wind, that are going to account for 95% of the renewables additions globally. One thing that is important maybe to mention here is that when you think about uh, these technologies, they are very different by nature. Mm -hmm. So solar photovoltaics, uh, you have two types of, 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 of projects that are going to be built. One is what we call uh, utility scale projects. We talk about projects bigger, larger than five megawatts. And then we have uh, distributed uh, distributed solar. And by distributed solar, we talk about smaller uh, uh, smaller installations that normally are going to be ore 
on the roofs of warehouses, on the roofs of houses, in industrial side. So we are talking about a much more distributed way of building uh, solar plants. Then we have the utility scale. These are the large uh, solar plants that you see when you drive in the road, and then you see these big, uh, these big installations of solar solar panels. And then you have, and 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 what is important maybe to keep in mind is that 50% of all the solar additions are going to come in the form of distributed solar. So we are talking about small installations. And then you have onshore wind and offshore wind, the two, the two other technologies. Uh, that basically offshore wind is it's really big projects. We are talking about projects of an average size of 100 to 200 megawatts of capacity. So really, we are talking about big investments. We are talking about massive projects, right? Uh, onshore wind, we are talking about smaller projects in the range, depending on the regions as well. But on average, we could talk about something around 50 megawatts projects. Uh, but in places like the US, clearly the size is going to be bigger. And in other places in Europe, the size is, the size is going to be smaller. And this is more determined by uh, the availability of space and regulation. So when you talk about, uh, I guess, solar, why don't we start there? You know, if 50% is going to be on that distributed model, the, the rooftop model, or are we talking about how, how do the business models differ for the solar companies who, who are targeting more residential or, or end using customers? versus more, more the, the, the utility-based customer. Well, well, one is well, dealing with thousands of customers versus a much smaller handful, right? Exactly. We are talking about business models that are completely different and revenue streams that are completely different in the sense that when you are thinking about an investment, let's imagine for a, a commercial or industrial side, right? The rationale behind building uh, or installing uh, solar panels normally is to offset the retail price, right? Is to be able to produce your own generation, to produce your own electricity that you consume, and then you offset the power price that you have to pay uh, through the through the retail fee. So clearly, the cost competitiveness of these installations or the attractiveness of these installations is going to be driven by the price of the retail power prices, right? Is the level of the retail power price. When you think about a larger scale solar farm, basically what you are trying to compete is against the wholesale price or you're going to or trying to compete to be able to sign PPAs, PPAs agreements with procurement agreements with corporations. So in terms of the, the size, that's one, one thing that is going to be very different. And that means that the development skills that you need to have in order to develop a big, large uh, solar farms versus uh, distributed installations is completely different in terms of the approach, in terms of the business model that you are trying that you have to develop, in terms of the structure that you need to have. And then in terms of the revenues as well, the revenues that you are going after are completely different revenues. So the logic of the investment is slightly different. And are you selling directly to the end user in that uh, the distributed environment? And is that true? Are you seeing the same distribution of activity across all regions? Or that there, there seems to be some level of sophistication as an end user to decide to put solar panels on his or her roof? No, exactly, exactly. So that brings us to another figure that is quite interesting is what we call the, the, the prosumer, right? So this is a word that is being used quite a lot in, in Europe, but as well in the US. And it's this idea that you have a producer that is consumer at the same time, right? It's that prosumer. Uh, prosumer, a producer okay. and consumer, right? It's the fusion of the two words. 
And that's interesting because uh, you have your own uh, solar plant on the roof of your warehouse or in your industrial area. And basically what you do is that you produce or you sell your electricity to the grid, but at the same time you consume the electricity that you produce. And the reason uh, behind that is basically you want to offset or you want to get a cheaper electricity than the alternative that would be to buy the electricity from the network. So really, and then uh, by going back to your question about uh, you are selling to the end consumer, and this is true in places when this is a, this is allowed, and that that means that not everywhere in the world the figure of a prosumer can be deployed, mm -hmm. because not everywhere you have a free markets where people can decide to produce their own electricity or versus buying the electricity from the network. In some markets, an industrial company has to buy directly the electricity from the network. So the figure of the prosumer is not, is not, is not possible. So it's really, and, and I think that regulation and the type of a structure of the power markets is what defines the different business models that we are seeing emerging in different places related to the same to the same activity that is basically uh, producing electricity using solar panels and where are the prosumers if it's if they're not everywhere there are in in places where it is allowed they are in europe they are in north america you start to see them as well uh, in, in in some places in Latin America. You have them starting in, in some places in, in Africa. So people who basically produce their electricity. But I think what is important as well in the figure of the prosumer, a prosumer is a producer and consumer in the sense that you produce and you sell and you consume. In some places where you cannot produce and sell to the grid because you you are not allowed. What we see is people who develop uh, off-grid generation. So basically, they develop their own generation in their industrial side just mm -hmm. uh, to fulfill their energy requirements. In this case, they are not going to be treated as prosumers. They are going to be treated as, well, self-generation. In that case, it will be called self-generation. Is there a backlash from the traditional utility providers in, in of, these markets? Of course, because yeah. that's the... the that's the, that's the typical risk of uh, grid defection, right? There is going to be a point that uh, people might decide that they don't buy from the grid and they produce their own electricity. This is demand that is going to, to, to disappear. So an incumbent utility this is, is really concerned about that because that's a market that disappears and it's captured by the consumer, basically, that is producing its own electricity. So at the beginning, we saw a little bit of pushback from utilities or a lot of pushback let's put it like this trying to avoid this phenomenon to happen by pressing or uh, forcing the regulators to change the, the regulation to make sure that uh, self-consumption was not allowed in other places we saw taxes being being applied to self-generation of electricity in other cases we have seen as well some taxes being put or the obligation for people to remain connected to the grid but what we have seen as well is that because the cost of renewables is going down so dramatically and it's unstoppable, this is something that uh, that is going to happen anyway. So mm -hmm. as this is happening anyway, what we have seen recently is that the utilities have changed their approach and instead of opposing, they have embraced this movement, right? Because at the end, it's it's very simple, is that if there is the risk of cannibalization of my business, there are two options. Or I cannibalize myself, my business, or I wait for somebody else to cannibalize it. So clearly, uh, self-generation uh, has been perceived by new entrants as an opportunity to enter in markets where you had a very strong incumbent. The incumbent has interest in capturing this opportunity instead of letting it available 
or leaving it available to 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 its competitors. So we are seeing a we, we are seeing a change in the in the approach uh, from 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 incumbent utilities, and you are seeing that in many countries these incumbent players they have been really developing businesses around self-consumption and uh, and empowering consumers to produce their own electricity. And are they viewing it yet as a partner where, where they see the if, if, if I produce more, say, solar electricity than I need at my house and want to, to, to move it to you, I would think I would need the utilities infrastructure to, to get it from me to you or, or some sort of connection. Is there any sort of that partnership model being between you between utilities, you mean, and? And consumers, that, that a, 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 if, if I'm uh, thinking about uh, this correctly, the utility connects each of the consumers still, right? Exactly, and the utility the utility has different business, right? Or businesses. One business is around the distribution, right? Distributing the electricity, so it's the physical, the wires that bring electricity from the generation center to the consumption, so where the consumption is that's one utility business another utility business is just providing the electricity right you generate the electricity and you sell the electricity so what we are seeing is that utilities being the ones that offer the possibility of connecting not just the connecting the prosumer with the networks and bringing the electricity to other clients what we are seeing as well is utilities putting the facilities going to industrial players and proposing them uh, to to develop their own generation capacity and giving them access to panels, uh, helping them in the design of the installation, just to make sure that if it's not them who do that, uh, there is going to be somebody else who's going to try to jump into mm -hmm. this opportunity and to capture this opportunity. So we are seeing the, the utilities being active, uh, quite active into that. I would say that it's not always and not everywhere the same, right? Uh, some utilities are more active than others. Even in the US, right, you have some utilities that, ver that are just working on the very focused on their utility business and they are not doing anything in that, in that space. On the contrary, we are seeing like uh, Austin Energy and companies mm -hmm. like this being really proactive and, and really being very creative in offering new, new business models and new, 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 new alternatives to, to, to their client base really being innovative. The same happens in Europe. In Europe, what we have seen is a lot of the utilities as well, incumbent utilities, really uh, pushing and accelerating their transformation, uh, being present in this in this distributed generation business. As I said, at the end, it's a, it's a survival uh, question. Is that it's me who eats on my own plate or somebody else is going to come and to eat from my client base? Uh, and then, yeah, they have take, taken more of a, of a pragmatical approach. And are the companies th themselves, the, the, the solar companies themselves, are, are these different where one is focused on the residential customer and one focused on the utility customer? Or, or are they different models within the same company, the, the same provider? Well, I think, it, I think it, it, it's, it's a mix. I would say let, maybe we can start by the end, right? Mm -hmm. When you think about... This, I, I, I think I, I see that as being different uh, channels, right? One channel is you develop, you produce the electricity that you sell to the to, to the market. So it's basically you have more of a generation business that it's linked to the utility business. For that, you need a certain set of skills, right? You need right. to be able to design big plans. You need to be able to deal with wholesale prices. You really need to have. Uh, you need to produce your electricity in a very utility-type mode. So this requires a certain uh, skill set. When you are selling 
to individual clients when you are targeting uh, residential uh, consumers or you're talking uh, CNI, not commercial and industrial consumers, the type of structure that you need to have as a company is different. It's just because the scale of the designs or the projects is different. As well, the, uh, the, the, the clients that you have are much more atomized. You have multiple clients that you have to deal with. So your sales force, your engineering force has to be designed in order to be cost effective. So the approach is very different. And then what I would say is that these two businesses are two businesses that are completely different. And we tend to have specialized players in each of these segments. That said, but we are, when you think about one utility company, like think about the Western utilities that are uh, the, the, Western, uh, the European utilities that are international utilities who are active in the U.S. For example, Enel, Iberdrola, mm-hmm. through Abangrate in the U.S., for example. These companies, they have two different businesses. They are developers of capacity. So they are renewables developers, so they know how to develop a big solar farm and they know how to really maximize the revenue that they get from these projects if they sell to the wholesale market. But at the same time, they have a utility business and they have a residential business. They have a structure that uh, or the experience in their home markets to deal with individual services uh, or even they have utility businesses right so these companies they tried or they tend to combine the two services or the two approaches they have the development arm that basically is the largest scale development body that, that develops large large projects but at the same time they have a business unit that focuses on residential and commercial and industrial clients but these are more the exceptions these are what we call integrated uh, international mm-hmm. utilities have these two businesses coexisting in their in their yeah in the in the company. And do you notice any sort of preference for, for one side or the other, or, or re- returns higher on the the call it the, the, the bigger side? As I, I would assume, hitting many many customers in the way that one would have to do with residential is going to affect your return profile more than working with one very large customer. Yeah, but at, this, but at the same time, I would say that the margins can be relatively higher. I think that the complexity is driven by the atomization of the client base that you have to go to and the fact that you have to multiply several times uh, the same type of project and, and to tailor it to, to clients. So the cost uh, per unit delivered is going to be higher. At the same time, what you can do is that the value that you extract, if you are good at that, is that you can extract different revenue streams from the same asset, right? One revenue stream can be linked just to the sale of the electricity to the end consumer, but at the same time, you can, if you control this generation, what you can do is that you can provide services to the system, to the power system. That's another revenue stream that if you control this, re- this uh, the generation from this asset, this is a revenue stream that you can go after, right? So that's, I think that the ability of combining or stacking different different revenues or uh, different layers of revenue to the same asset is what's going to make the difference between a successful company in that space and not. The thing is that in terms of preference, I think it depends a lot on the markets. In some mar- some markets are much more suitable or much more interesting for larger scale projects for some of these companies, and in other markets, especially the home markets where these companies already have a retail business going for this uh, CNI group of uh, companies, is going to be interesting. Another thing that is important. Important as well, it relates to the entry barriers, right? When you are mm-hmm. talking about very big projects, uh, normally it's okay. 
uh, the costs are going to be lower. You can optimize the cost, but at the same time, competition tends to be extremely fierce because the, the entry barriers are relatively low. So you see a lot of players competing for the same opportunity. When you are talking about commercial and industrial, there are some entry barriers, or some, co some costs that are related more to the ability of accessing the end consumer, right? Having a sales force that is able to identify consumers, that has the relationship with the consumers. And this is something that utilities tend to leverage uh, on their benefit. It's, uh, it's much more difficult to get into this atomized space because uh, getting access to the client, normally it's a, it's a, it's a time-consuming and a resource-consuming uh, effort. So what I'm trying to say is that it depends on which market and depends on what is the starting point. There is more preference for one or the other model. If, so, so if we look, if we put the traditional utilities, you know, who can really compete on project size and scale to the side for the second, are you seeing any, you know, particularly innovative companies who are defining that, that new space differently than their peers? I think that there are more or less, uh, more or less, the same. One thing that we are seeing, and I think that that's important, is that when you think about the, the, the truly global players, what we are seeing is that in the past they used to, when you think about the, the utilities and you look at the, at the, at the, at the assets that they have been owning uh, since the, I would say since 2010 or something like this, I'm, I'm not going to move mm -hmm. uh, to look uh, much, for, uh, much backward, but 2010 to now, the largest players in the world and the largest utilities, they had preference for onshore wind. Onshore wind has been the, the, the preferred technology that they have been investing in. Why? Because the, uh, onshore wind for them was a larger scale business, big projects, and where dealing with complexity was more important. So it was easier for them to differentiate from their competitors, right? So, and when you look at the portfolios of the, I would say the top 20 companies in the world in terms of renewables, the preferred technology is onshore wind. Onshore. However, onshore wind, yeah, mm -hmm. onshore wind. And in fact, when you look at the installed base, onshore wind uh, together with solar PV is the most installed tech technology globally. The thing is that what we are seeing and what we have been observing over the past years is that the companies are tending to change their portfolios or to complement their portfolios. It's very rare that you have uh, companies that are just focusing on one technology. They tend to combine uh, uh, the technologies and normally the biggest uh, international players they tend to have onshore wind increasingly off uh, solar PV and they are adding as well the offshore wind bit in them. Why? Because depending on the countries where they want to, to go they choose a technology strategy, right? Not all the mm -hmm. markets are suitable for all the technologies. Not all the technologies have the same value. So if you combine different technologies if your portfolio is much more diverse that means that you can get a, a much balanced portfolio and then the return on the total portfolio is going to be higher. So it's more about optimization of portfolios and we are seeing this trend happening and it's quite, it's quite interesting because it's, it's a transformation of the traditional portfolios of companies uh, over time. And now recently what we have seen is more of an increased interest into, into offshore wind, that's for sure. And we, we spoke... Um... I guess it was about two or three weeks ago with Andre uh, in, in depth on uh, offshore wind, and, and we spoke. Of, you know, when, when speaking with him, we, we talked a lot about the uh, high barriers to entry and how the, these big projects suit 
big companies and, and the project complexity. How should we be looking at onshore wind? Is that a relatively simple? I guess one, how should we look at onshore wind relative to offshore wind? And then two, how should we be looking at onshore wind relative to solar? I, I think that onshore wind is the technology that is more on the pressure, I would say, because it's a technology that is more complex than onshore wind and more expensive than onshore. I, sorry, onshore wind is more complex and expensive than solar photovoltaics. But at the same time, the capacity factor or the, the output that you generate from solar, from onshore wind versus solar, is higher. So what we are seeing is that onshore wind, it's a technology that in some cases is not preferred uh, or solar is preferred than onshore wind just because it's a simpler technology. Onshore wind has the complexity of moving parts, right? You have, think about the windmill mm -hmm. with the three blades spinning. So you have a lot of mechanical fatigue. You have a lot of tear uh, of, of the materials. So uh, the maintenance, the complexity of managing a wind farm is greater than the complexity of, of, of managing a solar a solar farm right but at the same time the advantage of onshore wind versus uh, versus solar is the amount of electricity that you can that you can extract uh, from a given site for a certain level of uh, of capacity so it's more complex it's more expensive than solar if solar is an alternative to onshore wind people tend to prefer solar rather than onshore wind the other thing is that because of complexity, uh, but then complexity is interesting and some companies they prefer to focus on onshore wind because because they, they can create some entry barriers, right? They can, mm -hmm. complexity is a way for them to bring to the table things that uh, financial players or less experienced players cannot bring, uh, cannot bring and, as a, and as a result, they can ring fence uh, their, their investment. However, when you think about offshore wind, offshore wind is much more complex and bigger than non-shore wind. So a lot of these players who are looking for volumes and who are looking for areas where they can bring their, their expertise, they are turning their eyes into offshore wind as a more interesting alternative rather than onshore wind. So that's why I'm saying that onshore wind is a little bit under a lot of pressure because despite being the most popular technology in the past, now you have that in places where uh, simplicity matters, you're going to have more solar photovoltaics being deployed rather than onshore wind. And in places where complexity of companies that uh, that value more complexity, you're going to see offshore wind being deployed before onshore wind. And the other thing that is as well is important is that NBs and right opposition, it's much more complicated to, especially when you go for, to very big towers, Onshore wind is getting mm -hmm. a lot of uh, pushback from the from the public opinion. Real people, there is a lot of uh, there is big NBism movements in, and this is a phenomenon that is happening almost everywhere in the world. People don't want to have their these very large wind turbines or wind uh, spinning next to their houses or in the middle of a. You, you mentioned that you were. Uh, that you were on a on a road trip right last week, and when you cross and you have this fantastic landscape and you start to see hundreds of windmills, uh, maybe it's not the best uh, visual impact, right? If you have solar panels, you barely see them, right? It's uh, it's it's less mm -hmm. less aggressive in terms of uh, visuals, and that's why what we are seeing is that in some places. Uh, some countries are preferring just to uh, prioritize offshore wind as an alternative to onshore wind because offshore wind doesn't have the problem of MBism. You have other problems related to marine routes and it's uh, mm -hmm. you have issues with uh, fishermen and things like this. But at the same time, you don't have the, the problem around visual impact. 
that you have with uh, with onshore wind. So that's why I'm saying that uh, solar, I saw onshore wind is it's a little bit under under pressure right now. But still, we do expect that uh, that is going to be a significant contributor to the growth. I think that uh, just globally to 2050, one quarter, uh, 26% of all the capacity that's going to be added globally is going to come from onshore wind. It's true that solar PV is going to be 60%, as I said at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but an offshore wind that is uh, it's getting a lot of momentum and a lot of headlines is going to account for 11%, more or less, according to our forecast of the total additions that we are going to see between now and 2050. Well, in talking about NIMBYism or not in my backyardism, you know, if, if you know, as we discussed, I drove to California last week or two weeks ago and you know, there were huge wind farms all over West Texas, and there were also some very large solar farms um, and a lot of you know oil fields. Um, what's the scale in terms these these large solar fields or solar farms? Is there some sort of acre metric of uh, I need X acres to build a wind farm onshore, and I need X acres to build a solar farm to get the same amount of electricity? Yeah, well, it that's not one to one because the thing is that what you have with wind is that uh, it's you you can decide on the size of the turbines that you use and the type of and the size of the blades that you use. So there is no no you don't you don't have an exact metric to compare to compare things in terms of renewable additions. The this the capacity that has been added over the past twenty years. It's going. To, it's six times less than the capacity that is going to be added in the next 30 years. So to give you just a sense of the of the magnitude, right? And if you think about uh, all the hundreds of windmills that you saw on your way to to California, if all this new capacity will have to be built, well, imagine uh, the amount of uh, of new wind farms that will have to be built. And this is going to potentially have a significant environmental impact in terms of visual uh, impact. And, and, and we are seeing that in more densely populated areas like in Europe, in France, for example, NBSM is big. Even in Germany, NBSM is starting to be important. We are seeing a lot of NBSM in the UK where it's almost impossible to, to, to build uh, onshore wind. Um, so this is something that uh, the more you add capacity, the more sensitive people become to this, uh, to this visual impact. And in our view, this is going to be one of the inhibitors of the growth of, of this technology going forward. Well, and maybe this is a good place to finish, and, and I'd love to, to, to continue this conversation and our conversation on uh, uh, Barcelona soccer, but, but maybe that's for another podcast. But as we're looking at, it's, it feels like solar is you know highly disruptive in a sense to some of the, the wind. As solar gets more you know mature in the way that wind got, is, is it right to look for kind of solar nimbyism? Um, on the back of this as well? And does that open the door, you know, as we're thinking of perhaps new technologies? Is there another technology we should be watching that, that starts to make inroads here? Well, I think that I, th- I think we are going to see onshore wind and solar, well, wind in general and solar photovoltaics for years. Because even if there is NBS, and one of the advantages of solar photovoltaics is that you, you basically can develop it in in many different places. It can be installed on roofs of the warehouses. It can be installed uh, in the middle of nowhere. It 
can you can have activities underneath. So we are is what I said is that mm -hmm. we are we are starting to see some initiatives to have uh, agricultural activities under the solar panels, right? So the idea is really to create or to minimize the amount of land that you are impacting by the build out of this capacity. So I think that the people are companies are going to be extremely creative going forward because basically the cost is going down so rapidly that it makes uh, it, it's worth to make the effort of trying to be creative of finding alternative or, 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 or solutions uh, to this to, to the MBEism problem when it comes to solar when it comes to onshore wind it's a little bit more complicated because physically you need to have the the turbine you need to have the blades and you need to capture the wind so in that sense uh, onshore wind is going to be a lot, under a lot of pressure what we are going to see is that the development of the new tier turbines of the improved of the turbines and the generators, what is going to allow is that for the same size, you're going to be able to produce much more electricity. So that means that for the same equivalent uh, amount of megawatts of a wind farm, you're going to be able to have less turbines. And then that means that the visual impact is going to be minimized. Instead of having to install 10, mega, uh, 10 turbines, maybe with two turbines, you're going to have to be able to have the same output. But still, you're going to have two very big turbines that are going to be spinning that are going to impact the the, the, the landscape. But, but that said, I think that the technology, uh, NBism is not a new phenomenon. We have seen it uh, on the discussion in Europe for many years. And, mm -hmm. and currently, we are starting to see a lot of NBism. But the industry and the technology has been able to adapt and has been able to deliver, I would say, uh, and to answer some of the questions and to overcome some of the issues around NBism. So I, I, I don't think that it's going to be enough of, a, of an inhibitor to enable a completely new technology to come up and to displace solar photovoltaics or, or, or wind from the, from the map. We don't see that happening uh, over the next 30 years. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, this has uh, been super interesting and thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to, to continuing the conversation with you uh, sometime soon. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot, Hill. I think that we will have certainly to continue with the discussion because this is just, uh, yeah, it was just a, a snapshot, right, of uh, what's going on. I think that, yeah, there is much more underneath. Yeah, there is another element that is going to be important is going to be around the investment. So one day we can maybe have a chat as well about uh, so what that means in terms of investment for, for the different technologies and opportunities for, or for investors. Sounds great. Thanks, Edward. Well, thanks to you. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.